0: Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&A. This Friday, June 3rd, I will be at Retro Games Plus from about 6pm till 10pm at their Congo swap meet thing. I'm not really sure what to call it, but basically anybody who's interested could just show up, hang out, bring a bunch of stuff to sell. And if you were interested in any of the larger things I was selling that I would not want to ship, now is the time to ask. Just jump in the comments or on Discord. Uh, It's probably easier if you're already friends with me on there, but I have a full 5.1 5.1 Elac around sound bookshelf system that's incredible that i wish i could hold on to what uh, we're doing work on the upstairs i have arcade machines like anything you're interested in that's on the larger side if you're around orange connecticut within reasonable driving distance and you're going to be able to get there on friday definitely let me know because i think this would be a fun time to hang out i'll just show up with my old ass truck pile the back of it with anything anybody wants and just meet you all there. So please let me know if you're interested. I'll uh, I'll be checking the comments the next couple of days just to make sure I try to catch anybody and just don't put any links because I don't want the comments to be auto-deleted by YouTube or anything. Just wherever you go, let me know and hopefully I'll see you all there. And if nobody's interested in anything, I'll just bring a small bag of stuff and still come hang out because I absolutely love hanging out with all of you. So hopefully see you on Friday, but let's jump in and see what else we got this week. Last week, Cricks put a bunch of limited edition EverDrive 64s up for sale. And while those sold out immediately, I did just want to clarify a few things that had happened. As with any kind of limited edition stuff, they sold out immediately, and there was a whole bunch of bumps in the road. The website overloaded, and then even though there were only a 100 to sell, somehow the website allowed for 250 orders to go through, so Crick's had to manually go back and refund everybody or cancel the order or whatever else. So, absolutely not their fault, but you know, it happened. So I just wanted to keep everybody in the loop. And also Cricks delayed shipping those out because the stickers they used weren't sticking properly. And he really just wanted them to be special limited editions. So he's delaying it until the new stickers come in, which I just think is Awesome. I love it when people spend that much more attention to detail on stuff, especially when something's supposed to be limited and special. Um, I really think it goes twice as far in those scenarios. So, thanks very much to Crix for doing all this stuff and, uh, you know, for being the opposite of a lot of these other cartridge sellers where you get something limited and a bunch of junk shows up. It's the opposite with Crix. You're, you're going to get a good product. So, just wanted to uh, update everybody who maybe tried to order and couldn't or ordered but their order was delayed or something like that. Just figure it was worth spending a moment to let everybody know. Pre orders are now open on a vinyl version of the SNES Breath of Fire soundtrack. The price is about $40, and Ship to Store claims that. All of the soundtrack has been remastered from new recordings that were created on original SNES hardware. And as with all of these things, I'm really curious to know what version of the SNES did they use, what cables, how did they remaster it? Um, not uh, both because I'm a paranoid nerd and because I'm an interested nerd. I really just love to learn about these things. And I don't think any of that info is out there, but if anybody knows anybody who works at ship to store, maybe we can get some inside info on that because I think it would be a pretty cool thing to, to discuss. And to figure out, but anyway, uh, anybody who's interested in the Breath of Fire, Breath of Fire vinyl soundtrack, just check out Crystal's post, and the links to worldwide links are all right there. This week's podcast is once again brought to you by JLCPCB, and this week I want to talk about how to order a stencil along with your PCB order. So first, why would you want a stencil? Well, if you have a PCB with a lot of surface mount components on it, manually soldering each component is a giant pain and takes a lot of time. So if you have a reflow oven or if you're really good with a hot air rework station, you could use a stencil to drag solder paste across just the SMD pads, use tweezers to place your components individually, and then just use heat to stick them to the board. Now, how to do that would require an entirely separate video, but if you know that that's something you want to do and if that would make your life easier, all you have to do is drag your Gerber file the same exact way you normally would into JLCPCB's website and then select all of your options and scroll down to the bottom to select a stencil. Then if you want, you could also say if you want just the top or bottom of the PCB, or if you want one stencil for each, which of course would add a little cost because it's making two different stencils, but that's all you have to do. Also, if you're like me and you've placed a PCB order, but then forgot to make a stencil with that, you could also just have only a stencil made for you. The options are all the same as if you had added it along with the PCB. You just have to select top, bottom, or both, or one or two stencils. Also, while this does affect shipping, JLCPCB offers many different shipping options, ranging from incredibly affordable to expensive, but arrives very quickly. So absolutely, whatever shipping options for your budget, wherever it is that you're located. I'm showing options for both US and Canada here, and shipping's never going to be a problem with JLCPCB. So that's it for this time, but check out my other JLC PCB segments and previous weekly roundups for more info on how to order PCBs, how to order PCB assembly, and more info on the company. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about how Crix had added a new NES core to the EverDrive 64, essentially allowing you to play an FPGA recreation of NES games on your N64, which could be good for a number of different reasons. And while I still don't think it's going to be the definitive way to play NES games, and I'm sure Crix doesn't think that either, by the way, Retro Kevin did a video showing and explaining the differences between the original NES emulator that was running on the EverDrive 64 versus the new core that Crix had released. And it's a great video that shows the differences and kind of goes into it. So if you were curious yourself, what the differences were and what it was like, definitely check out Kevin's video. Uh, And either way, I'm just appreciative that we get all of this cool stuff for free after we buy a product. So thank you to everybody who puts out free firmware updates. This next section is about the Retron 5 and I actually have something I'm excited to talk about related to that product. ManCloud has ported over the firmware for both the RetroFreak and Retron Labo over to the Retron 5. The RetroFreak firmware is a little bit more straightforward in that you're basically just having the user experience of the other similar product, but on the Retron 5. And the Retron Labo one is where things get really interesting because that was a firmware that was released years ago that allowed you to essentially turn your Retron 5 into a cart dumper, cart flasher, and a whole bunch of other tools were added to it. as well as the way, or the ability to play software emulation on it, like uh, like the original firmware had, but when that firmware was released, it was kind of convoluted. You had to have it go through a server. It was a very strange process that I remember writing about and just thinking, how weird is all of this? And then the project was basically completely abandoned for years now. So ManCloud was able to have that firmware reworked in a way where you could just load it up on your Retron 5 and start using it without any of the weirdness of a few years ago. Um, If you were part of the original team or the original person who created the Retron Labo firmware, please reach out if you have any questions. But I think people tried to, so no one stole anything. It was an abandoned project that was now made actually useful for the first time in years. Um, But it's a bit of a complicated process, and you could potentially break your Retron 5, but Easy Goodnight has us taken care of with that. There is now a full guide up on RetroRGB that shows what you could do with this new firmware or these new firmwares, how exactly to install it. And how to unbrick your console if it happens. And that's exactly what happened to Easy Goodnight when they tried to load up this firmware. They got their Retron 5 bricked, but was able to bring it back to life with a few short steps that basically seem like things that are just time consuming. You know, read your read the steps carefully, go one at a time, but not really hard. It's not like you you're required to solder some crazy contraption in order to do this. You basically just have to follow some instructions and be patient. And I believe unbricking is only really done on windows for this, but overall I thought it was an absolutely awesome guide and especially an awesome firmware that allows you to do all this stuff because these software emulation boxes are, they're neat in the moment sometimes, but they don't really age well because the moment new processors come out and new ways to play these games come out, you kind of look back at these older consoles and you're like, eh, why would I bother now? Especially at the price of some of these. So having the ability to flash different firmware to make it very useful is something that I would really appreciate. And while I haven't had the chance to test this yet, I haven't even owned a Retron 5 in a long time, five, six years or something like that, Uh, But if I'm ever able to stumble across one cheap, I might pick one up just to do this, just to be able to have a pretty neat ROM dumper that supports pretty much all of the cartridges that I would want to throw at it anyway. So if you have a, I I wouldn't go hunting down a Retron 5 just for this unless you stumble across one super cheap. However, if you already own one, I would at the very least give Easy Good Night's post a full read and see what you think um, and maybe check out ManCloud's firmware and see if it's for you. But I think a lot of people would be interested in this and it certainly opens the door for a lot of possibilities. Sega RPG Fan has just gotten a new method of playing the Sega Saturn across the networking and it is very cool. Please check out Dave's post if you're really into this and you want all the details. I certainly got sucked into it and it really motivated me to want to try this but I'll give the quick rundown for anybody who's interested. Basically what Sega RPG Fan has done is allowed you to take something like the original um, Netlink, or the X-Band cart, and connect that to a different PC. So you're going to need a modem on your PC and a way to generate voltage down the line, which is easy. You could get USB devices. There's totally kits set up to do stuff like this. But basically, you use your PC as a proxy, and you're able to play Netlink games at a much lower latency than previously achieved. So that means you could do, uh, or you could play games like... um Virtua Fighter Remix, Virtualon, Puzzle Bomberman or Puzzle Bobble and Bomberman all across the internet, which I think is really interesting. I personally, as much as I like Virtua Fighter, I would love to play Virtual on with the big, you know, arcade stick style controller across the net with somebody else. I just think that's the coolest thing in the world. So Dave has a full guide here of what you'll need to get it running. And while it, it is a bit much, um, once you kind of get into the swing of things, you should be able to take care of it pretty easily. And it seems pretty. Pretty awesome just to even think about that. So, I would absolutely check out their video and Dave's post just to see exactly what it is that you need to do. But I'm pretty excited for stuff like this. And hopefully, things like this could eventually be rolled into like a retro NAS plugin where you buy yourself a USB modem and plug it into whatever you're using. And then you could just load it up that way. Like, I, while it's absolutely awesome in its current form, any way we could streamline it would be amazing. And uh, imagine if someday someday, in big capital letters, maybe, way down the line, we're able to figure out how to do stuff like this using Mr. And I obviously would not want to put pressure on SRG320 to add this when the core isn't even finished, which is why I emphasized far in the future. But I still love to think ahead for stuff like this, because my my nerd brain is always seeing exactly what's going on now, and also watching the dominoes fall into the future, wondering where it's going to go. So I just, I see stuff like this, and in its current form, i just really excited about a neat way of playing saturn over the internet but i absolutely see where stuff like this could go in the future so thank you so much to sega rpg fan thanks to the saturn Shiro crew to for always highlighting this stuff can't thank them enough for all the work they do in this stuff and uh, i just think it's absolutely awesome so if you're a saturn fan uh maybe you look into this because i think it's worth trying Luis from Zez Retro and I just did a live stream testing S video and composite output from the Mister. And while this is a really complicated subject that we totally go through in the live stream, I'm gonna give you a quick summary here, but if anything that I'm saying doesn't really make sense, it's because it's way more complicated than I could jam in a two or three minute segment. You'd really have to suffer through the full live stream. Luckily, Lewis does a great job making it entertaining, so he's there to, to keep you smiling while I'm dicking around trying to get it all working. But I'll give you the full rundown. The way analog video is generated out of the Mister is in RGB. And in order to convert that to S video or composite, you could use external chips, or you could try to work it inside the core. Using external external chips is pretty easy. And in theory, depending on how you wanna use it, you could actually even use an external box that you could use with anything that outputs RGB. And going from RGB to S video is mostly okay. Sometimes you'll run into an issue where you get some weirdness, you get some flicker, but for the most part, if you have, let's just say an all digital HDMI setup and you grabbed yourself an old CRT that has an S video input, almost all of these methods will be very good. Um, I, I really like the Action, Action Works box. I think there's room for tweaking in that one, but it's not cheap. But it certainly works really well. And all of the Mister integrated cases, like the one from Retro Castle, works excellent. I was able to test a prototype from Pork Mister Add-ons that I thought was great as well. And after the stream ended, I got messages from a few other people saying, "Hey, I'm working on something too. You know, I'll let you borrow one at some point. Do a follow-up stream." So. RGB to S video is pretty in a pretty good place. It could be better when it comes to these con- external conversion circuits, um, whether it's in the I.O. board or a different box or whatever else. But RGB to composite is always going to be a problem no matter what. And that's because the way composite video is generated, you need the pixel clock and as well in order to get that info over to it. So there's a whole bunch of very detailed explanations that I, I definitely got into in the live stream that explains why and how, and I only went as smart as I am. Smarter people would definitely be able to explain it better, but I think I did a good enough job explaining why this isn't an easy thing. So at the moment, right now, if you want composite video from a mister, the Retro Castle case is by far the best option for one interesting feature. There is a screw terminal in the back of this thing that is actually a trim cap or a variable capacitor. And this works kind of like a clock where when you spin it all the way back, all the way around, it resets back to zero and one, it doesn't, you can't like over tighten or over loosen it. But in order to use this, you would load up, if possible, some color bars, if not pick the title screen of your favorite game, and you would basically just turn this dial until composite video looks best. And I was able to get Sega Genesis looking really, really nice with this thing. The downside is you would have to do it with every core. Now it's not going to be as big of a difference as external consoles, 'Cause it's all kind of being generated by the Mister, but it still is something you might end up tweaking. So as far as external circuits go, I think that's probably gonna the be the best we get for composite video. And in fact, Ivory from Retro Castle was talking about a follow-up product, uh, an external box. I've been talking to him about that for a while now, but I think he's gonna be sending that over relatively soon. And I'd really like to test that because while most people listening will probably be like, why are you wasting five minutes talking about composite video when I have an RGB setup, which is fair, but I think there's a lot of people out there with an all RGB setup going to a flat panel but they have a beautiful CRT sitting right next to them that's composite only and I think in those situations having an external box where you could dial in any console any anything at all with RGB and send it to composite I think that would be handy for a lot of people and I think a lot of people would really take advantage of it and I'm pretty sure you could still use light guns in that scenario as well, which is another huge bonus. I tested it with s video and it definitely worked so i'll I'll test again with that now. On the flip side of things, Mike Simone is working on S video support and composite video support in each of these cores. And that's something Lou's been mentioning. That's something we tested on, uh, on a live stream as well. And that has the potential to be perfect with not a conversion circuit at all. You just need basically a pin connector and there are gonna be some components on there, but you're not converting the circuit. It is outputting natively S-Video or then composite by design through a a Luma trap, I believe. I'm probably getting that wrong because I'm trying to funnel all this information as quickly as possible, but there's a few issues with that. First and foremost, it is a ridiculous amount of work. Just Every core has to be tweaked and rewritten. And then at the end of the day, is this something that is good for the entire Mr. Project. And I talked about this in the live stream, and I don't mind repeating it here as well, in that whenever you have a huge project like this, it is so easy to get sucked into the little corners of it. And I mean, this could be applied to companies, businesses, bands, whatever, right? So when you see an idea like this that seems amazing, you immediately think, well, why wouldn't you just, you know, everybody get together and roll it right into the main core and not have beta cores for this? But it's never that easy. What does adding this take away from something else? You know, what what has to be the trade-off? What other tweaking is made? Are you going to end up with an architecture that half the core support it, half don't? So it's way more complicated than that. And is this the best method? Will this fit or will sending the subcarrier signal or the pixel clock um, to the DIN as well to create the circuit from that be the better overall idea and easier to achieve... And that really is up to the core Mr. Team to decide. And it's something that only somebody with knowledge of the full project could make the right decision on. So I, I wanted to add that little bit of, I don't know, politics, if you want to call it that. I wouldn't, but whatever. <laughs> I wanted to add that last little bit in there, just just because it's so easy for, for somebody to just get excited without realizing that while this is amazing, and I really appreciate the work Mike's doing, the final implementation might be a little bit different. So That's another reason why I haven't done the analog video out of a Mr. Video yet because I just want to make sure a lot of this stuff is kind of finalized and we make the decision of, do we need direct video? Do we need dual RAM? Do we go with the IO board? There's a whole bunch of things to discuss. But basically right now you could get composite video and S-video through the solutions that I linked and showed. And you could also get direct S-video and composite using Mike's beta cores And hopefully that'll evolve into something that everybody could use without being in beta. So hopefully I gave you like a five-ish minute rundown here that kind of puts all of this into perspective. If you care enough that you really want the more details, you're probably going to have to sit through the live stream. Sorry about that. I wish I could have condensed it a little bit smaller, but it's kind of hard to. Uh, And if nothing else, I have the post here summarized as best I can. This is probably the two-minute version in the post. So any more questions about this, let me know. I'll be doing a follow-up stream when I get the newer adapters in because I do definitely think signal conversion is something that's not going to sell a million adapters, but it's something that could absolutely help a big chunk of us. A Palm OS developer named Aaron Ardiri has just released source codes for a bunch of different games that they originally worked on. First of all, does anybody remember Palm OS? Because I probably would have forgotten all about it if I didn't see Crystal's post. But I absolutely love seeing stuff like this because this is preservation at its best. The original developer just released all of the source code for all of the stuff that they worked on. So now this could be preserved for everybody to check out, to use, and to understand how the Palm OS worked a little bit better. So there's a bunch of games on here that are uh, originals. There are some clones, um, including... Donkey Kong and uh, Kung, which is like a Donkey Kong game, and Mario Brothers, which is a Mario Brothers clone. There's it's a bunch of fun stuff on here, but basically this is just a really neat look into the Palm OS and some of the games that were on there. And I'd be interested to see, did any of you play any of these games or even own a device with Palm OS on it? Uh, I would certainly would be interested to hear anybody's stories about it because I have a couple of vague memories But the architecture never turned out to be something that I could really use at that time for the work that I was doing. So I don't think I ever owned one or I owned a device with it, but... Pre-orders are open right now, today, June 1st, for all aluminum shells for the Nintendo Switch Lite. These are the ones that Tito from Macho Nacho Productions talked about in a previous video, and the price is $200, and they're expected to ship in a few weeks, probably by the end of the month. So this is something that was pretty neat, and I loved Tito's video on this, both because it was a really neat look at the case and if somebody would like it or not, but also it was a really great teardown guide for the Nintendo Switch Lite. So that was a worthy video to watch even if you're not interested in aluminum shells. But if you are, definitely check out that video as well as another one uh, on the YouTube channel, Wolf Den, and of course Tito's original post on it for more info. But this is a really cool and unique way to add something different to your Nintendo Switch. And it does not look like the easiest transplant, but it's definitely doable. And, you know, of course, this is a premium product, right? So there's no need. To upgrade to this. You can totally just use the original shell. But if you want something different and you want something unique and, you know, something that'll definitely stand out, you know, whenever you pull out your Switch in front of your friends, this is definitely something that is is pretty unique and awesome. So please check out the post and Tito's video on it if you're interested. If not, like I said, I'd still watch that video anyway, because it was a really cool teardown of the Switch Lite. But links to everything you need are in the post, and uh, I'd love to see more of these out in the wild. Now it's time for this week's Mr. Updates Care of Lou from Lou's Retro Source. As always, I will fumble through these to the best of my ability and as quickly as I can. And if you hear anything that piques your interest, please go back and watch Lou's video for a lot more details as well as read Lou's post. Don't forget to subscribe to him, please. Uh, so, starting us out, first of all, Eric S5 has just forked the Commodore 64 core for one that is for the Commodore 128 and has implemented features that are exclusive to the Commodore 128. So that's pretty neat. If you were a fan of that platform, now you could have that experience. And I believe it's still a work in progress, but uh, it is usable. The, also, the in-progress PCXT core is available in beta form and can be downloaded from the project's GitHub. It's now based off of KFPCXT, which is another one of those cores. Um, and it's also a turbo mode was enabled, allowing 4.77 megahertz or a whopping 7.16 megahertz. I love looking back and seeing PCs back in the day when they had those turbo modes. Um, also, uh, RCA Victor Co. announced they're creating a new core for the arcade game Psychic 5 from Jalico. Does anybody know how to pronounce that? I, I, I've been playing their games since I was a kid, and I don't think I ever knew how to pronounce it correctly. But anyway, it's an action platformer that features hovering as an important game mechanic, so it seems like a pretty neat and unique one. And they also said that they're working on other games, but uh, nothing is out in beta yet. There's also a dedicated Super Game Boy Core from Paul BNL. And it basically took the SNES and Game Boy Cores and combined them to make a Super Game Boy Core. So a very quick history. Super Game Boy was the thing that allowed you to play Game Boy games in your Super Nintendo. Originally, the, the one that came or, or the, the way it was made, the aspect ratio was wrong and the speed was wrong. Then in Japan only, Super Game Boy 2 came out and the aspect ratio was still off, but the speed was much improved. So in order to handle all of this stuff, Paul NB allowed for three different modes. You could play it in Super Game Boy 1 mode, Super Game Boy 2 mode, and SNES speed mode, which is a slightly faster speed, so definitely don't use that for speed running, but there's no screen tearing, so it might be a better experience overall. I think they might be looking into aspect ratio correction as well, that might even be implemented already, so... um, And that's kind of an interesting topic in itself because one of the main reasons that you would want to use Super Game Boy today as opposed to just the Game Boy Core is a lot of these games had custom borders that would appear that filled the rest of the screen that were pretty neat. And some of them even changed depending on what part of the game you were on. And that's a neat experience, but those were designed for the Super Nintendo and a four by three aspect ratio. So if you squish the aspect ratio so that it looks proper for a Game Boy, you're then squishing the Super Game Boy border. So there's no perfect way to experience Game Boy via the SNES, whether it's in a core or on the original console. But this is really cool. So thank you very much to uh, Paul BNL for doing this, because I think there's just a bunch of fans of the unique Super Game Boy experience that uh, now have a chance to to really do it whichever way they prefer. Also, while there is no Amiga CD32 core for the mister, there's a post by user Caldor82 that explains how you could play those games using the Amiga core. And one, uh, both or two methods are explained. Sorry, I'm trying to fumble through this in real time here. One uses some CD32 to allow you to mount ISOs in the Amiga OS, which is awesome to think of like a retro OS that allows you to do that. Um, and the other method either uses Squirrel CD32 or IDE fix, and those create CD32 emulation boot disks for loading the software. So pretty good way to experience Amiga CD32 games for now, until the, the full architecture is already in there, but I think that's pretty cool. There's also a new core for the game, Pang, from Hotego. Uh, there's also some basic updates about things that Hotego's been working on, so I'm very excited to always see him work, go back and work on bug fixes and older cores, as well as start work on new ones. Uh, I love that the view of this is kind of like in all directions, not just charging forward on new stuff, so Uh, Much appreciated that the Pancor is getting worked on, but I also like to see some of the bug fix posts as well. Uh, I talked about Mike Simone's work before. Um, He is knee deep in this stuff. Uh, I think he said he's working on... uh, as many cores as possible to try to add this support, just as proof of concept to test, to see how it would fit in the architecture. So I'm really excited to see how that's gonna progress and what methods we're gonna eventually settle on to get S video and composite. Uh, There's also a bunch of miscellaneous updates um, for different cores. Ace had added a bunch of updates to his cores and another very cool addition to the main Mr. Software. So when you run whatever your update or software of choice is, mine still update all, you get the main architecture update. And my favorite of these is if you just delete the video mode from the INI file, it'll use Edid to automatically select the resolution of whatever it is that you're going to, which I think is so cool because I have a 1280 by 1024 5.4 screen sitting right here. That's only got three milliseconds of lag. That's kind of neat. It's kind of a cool way to play. And by the way, Mr. Resizes everything to four by three. So you don't have to worry about the panel's aspect ratio being off, but I also use it with my capture card with TVs and everything else. And I'm constantly changing it. So I think it's really cool to be able to have that feature and you could always use the alternative ini files so if you plug it into a display that's let's say 4k but it's detecting it is 720 or something i'm I'm making stuff up here but you could always just program in your alternate ini's and then just go right in the menu to select which one you want and when you reboot it'll stay in that mode so it's really the best way you could possibly do this. Um, I in fact think that the Mr. INI file should by default not have that there. So it just automatically detects what resolution it should be running in. I think that's a really good thing to get people started and to help people who have multiple monitors they want to use. Um, there's also a few other bug fixes and t- uh, tweaks, a direct video fix from Paul BNL, and you could now use horizontal video filter for vertical in interlaced modes and a bunch of other adjustments to care of wicker Waka. So, as always, thank you to everybody who contributes to the Mr. Project. Thank you to Lou for keeping all of this stuff in one place for us so we don't have to go searching through all the discords and forums and Patreon accounts to get all this. Much appreciated and, uh, man, really exciting time to be a retro gamer, huh? I recently did a talk, podcast, chat, whatever you want to call it, with Matt, aka Mateus Bayes. We have featured his work on retro RGB quite a bit in the past. Uh, I really enjoy how he translates incredibly technical stuff over to something that many people, if not most people, could understand. And it was fun chatting with him. Um, we didn't talk about his upcoming games that much, if at all, which I, I blame myself. I should have left that as a bullet point to go over. But I guess that just means I'll have to do another one with him when the games are released. Maybe I'll do a, um, a live stream of the game with uh, with him talking with me while we do it. But Basically, if you just like nerding out, and uh, especially if you like Sega consoles and the 32X and, and all that, definitely give this one a listen. We get a little technical, but uh, I that's I, so why I called it a nerd versation because if you're just looking for a casual chat, this borders a little bit more technical, but hopefully all my nerd friends will enjoy this one. So thanks to Matt very much for his time. Please keep doing those awesome videos, and I'll keep everybody posted when his games are released. Will from Will's Console Mods has just released a TMSS removal board for Sega Genesis consoles. And TMSS is Trademark Security System, which is that screen set that says produced by or under license from Sega Enterprises LTD that pops up on most Genesis consoles. And what that's doing is checking to make sure that the cartridge you've inserted is an officially licensed cartridge. There are two downsides to TMSS. First a bunch of original Japanese launch games won't boot without TMSS. So that means uh, Space Harrier, Thunderblade, and Afterburner, the Japanese versions, won't work on actual Genesis consoles, which is kind of funny. Um, Also, it takes four or five seconds for that thing to go away, which, if you're playing one game at a time, yeah, of course, don't be impatient, just wait the five seconds and you're done. But if you're a tester or somebody, especially a speedrunner who's going to constantly reboot and start, start over and stuff like that, those four or five seconds start to add up really quickly and for that exact reason i choose some earlier model ones that don't have tmss built in just so if i'm constantly rebooting a, a console all day long trying to get a mod to work or test something or get some footage i'm not end up wasting i'm not wasting minutes total of my time over the day i could just skip to it so maybe i'm just impatient i'm all right with that um so will designed this board that sits right over the cartridge pins you do have to cut some traces it's not the easiest and install, but it's also not the hardest at all. Um, There are a few downsides, though. First of all, this has not been tested on Model 3 Genesis consoles, however, I think that might be one of the best uses for it, I'll get back to that in a second. Um, Model 1s have been tested and working on Genesis and Mega Drive consoles, and same with Model 2, but no one's tested it on the Model 3 yet. So that'll probably be up to one of us to test, which is totally cool. The only other downside, though, other than some models not being tested, is that if you want to play cartridge-based games, you can't have a Sega CD plugged in with this board installed. So you can still use a Sega CD, obviously Genesis one and two, Genesis three doesn't support that, but you can still use a Sega CD, but if you just wanna play a cartridge game, you have to pop it out from the Sega CD in order for that to boot. So basically if you're a Sega CD user, think about this and see if this will work with your total workflow. And if not, this might not be for you. On the flip side though, if you're already triple bypassing a model three Genesis, and we proved that this does work with it as well, There's no downside because you can never plug that into a Sega CD. Same with a Nomad. And I've been using my Nomad recently for all my testing because it's portable. I got Greg's awesome battery pack on there, which lasts a long time. So now I could just have composite and RGB right from my handheld testing and on a whole bunch of different things with the 240p test suite. So I, I think I'd probably add that uh, add add it to my nomad just to save those four or five seconds at all my testing there so if this is something that you're interested in please check out Will's uh, Will's page on it and of course um, Sterling's full post on retro RGB for more info but it's, uh, it's something that I think a bunch of people might be interested in for a few different reasons the guides right here and it's 15 euros so it's about 20 bucks I guess um, if anybody's interested so kind of a fair price but check out both uh, the post and the page for more info and And I will hopefully get around to testing it on a Genesis 3 soon because I'm pretty curious about that. A new firmware was just released for the MemCard Pro that adds a few bug fixes and tweaks and also adds support for different hardware revisions for the MemCard Pro itself. So I'm sure many of you are already aware, so I'm going to just do this super quick but since we're in the middle of a brutal global part shortage that is killing so many of these projects many people are trying alternative hardware configurations to make the same thing and the end user result is identical but the chips that are on the board and the firmware is different so Some companies are taking the approach of having different hardware revs and you just have to match the firmware up to it. And the way the Memcard Pro team is going about doing it is trying to have the same firmware download that you could use on any hardware revision. And it'll essentially work the same. There's some slight differences in the procedure. Like one, you have to manually delete and merge something. The other one, it does it automatically. But it's very, very basic stuff. It does. It's not really something that you have to worry about. Just follow the instructions. Check the contents of the card after you're done updating, and, and you know, basically do what they say. But overall, I think this is awesome. Uh, it really sucks that we're all going through a part shortage that affects and it really negatively affects the end customer, the manufacturer, the designer, like everybody's screwed with this. So it's very cool that the team is pushing forward, trying different hardware revisions, and making it easier for all of us to continue to use that hardware regardless of what's inside. So uh, if you want any more info, check out Ronnie's post, and if you own a Memcard Pro or have one on the way and you want the latest firmware, just read through the bottom of the firmware page to get the exact details that you need, but overall it seems pretty straightforward. And I'm just, as always, very appreciative to any firmware updates that come out. I have a couple of pretty awesome announcements related to this year's Retro World Expo. I am incredibly excited about this, and I felt like now's the time to take a moment to explain why I'm so fired up. And then each week as I open the podcast, I'm going to announce a little bit more that we're doing. So give me a minute. I can't wait to tell you exactly what this is. So Retro World Expo is a retro gaming themed expo that's been happening for years now. I was at the first one. It's always been my favorite expo. The team that runs it is awesome. And this year, it is August 27th and 28th, a Saturday and Sunday, the last weekend of August. And the expo is located in Hartford, Connecticut, which is pretty much directly between Boston and New York. Uh, One might be quicker to get to depending on traffic, but it's about right in the middle. And it's also right next to Bradley International Airport, BDL, with free transportation to and from the hotel, if you use the hotel shuttle. So this is a perfect location for anybody on the East Coast, as well as anybody who just wants to fly in, which is why I thought it would be a great expo to sponsor and be a part of, to have kind of a fun meetup section for people who are friends of RetroRGB and you vultures sponsoring means that we're paying to sponsor RetroWorld we're not getting paid for it so you could save that trolling for CGD but uh, we are sponsoring the expo, or one of the sponsors and we're also going to have a RetroRGB and Friends section which basically is the same expo that anybody who's been there, it's going to be the same type of layout but the people who run it were nice enough to place everybody that's kind of affiliated with RetroRGB and our friends all in the same area. So... Every week, I'm going to be announcing somebody that's going to be at this expo that you might want to come visit. So, while of course the expo is going to have their own guests and panelists, like they always do, and there's always a great lineup of people, we're also going to have us, you know, retro nerd section. So, if you want to come hang out and meet any of us, uh, you know, whatever, we're going to be there. So, I'm very, very excited about this. It's uh, always been my favorite expo. This is going to be uh, the only one, probably, that I'm going to be at this year. And I want to make it really big. So every week as I start the podcast, I'm going to give a very short rundown, way shorter than this, that explains the, the, the expo, explains the section, and announce another person that's going to be hanging out, some with their own booth selling unique and interesting stuff and other people just there as guests hanging out bouncing between our booths and and just kind of being there and being a part of this so I'll start next week announcing the different people that'll be there you could already see who the official guests of the expo are by going right to their website and uh, I'm just really looking forward to hanging out with everybody and this one's driving distance of me so no matter what happens if I'm still breathing I will be there at the last weekend of August I could if I started right now I could walk and be there by midnight so so there's no excuse for me to. There's no way I'm missing this one. I will be there and it's going to be big. There's people from all over coming to hang out uh, and this is going to be a whole lot of fun. So I'll keep announcing guests as the week goes on. And if you are thinking of going to any expo on the East coast this year, this is going to be a big one and more people are joining even as I talk about this. So it's uh, It's going to be pretty exciting. So I hope to see as many of you there as possible. Any questions, ask in the comments and I'll, I'll gladly answer whatever anybody needs to know about this. Well, that's it for this time. There was some GameCube component video cable drama happening in the past week, but we don't have the full story yet. So I wanted to quickly mention it here, but also just say that I think I'm still going to completely reserve judgment until the last facts come in and we can figure out what happened. But I do think it's a worthy discussion, and I actually think it's the perfect topic to add to a follow-up podcast about clone companies, because Nick and Zach did that a while back, and we tried to keep it on topic. I know a few people were upset that we didn't talk about a few different subjects so I think this is the perfect time to go back, cover everything we missed last time, and then cover the conclusion to whatever it is that we just figured out last week. And I think the better forum to do that is a, a long form discussion where we could really go through and discuss all of the facts and really figure out what happened because clone companies really do ruin it for for everybody. Whether uh you know, whether you realize it or not because it's usually more of a long-term repercussion, I do think it's an incredibly important conversation to keep having. So as always, thanks to everybody who watches, listens, plays nicely in the comments, and especially thank you to people who do not support clone companies or support companies that support clone companies. Because whether you know it or care or not, it will eventually ruin it for the rest of us. So thank you all so much. Uh, If you'd like to support RetroRGB instead, their links are all down below. But really, just thanks for listening, thanks for watching, and thanks for caring about this stuff. And I'll see you next week.